Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Thursday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. As we mentioned yesterday, Jim Garrity was smart to skip town today so he doesn't have to do another day of disappointing midterm election analysis. But uh, as we did say yesterday, uh, it seems pretty likely, uh, even more likely today than it did yesterday, that Republicans will be in control of the House. And there's still a chance that they could be in control of the Senate, although the uh, lead for Adam Laxalt in Nevada appears to be dwindling. A lot of folks think it's going to disappear with these Dropbox ballots that are coming in. They're still really not counting at all in Arizona. Not really sure why. We do know about the problems on Tuesday, but uh, by now they should be counting them. And, of course, we're headed to a runoff in Georgia, it looks like. So Scott Bertram of uh, Hillsdale's 101.7 FM, Radio Free Hillsdale. He teaches journalism there as well. He's host of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour and the Political Beats podcast. The Radio Free Hillsdale Hour can be found on Ricochet as well. And, Scott, let's just set the table here. We're not going to have a good martini. We're going to have a double-fisted bad, a bad slash crazy, and then just a crazy that's a little bit away from politics. Uh, For those who have heard you on the podcast before or listened to your other podcast, they'll know you're originally from Illinois, and now that you work at Hillsdale, of course, you're in Michigan, and both states had a really rough election night. I, being from Michigan myself, more familiarity with what's happening there. I think to explain where we stand now in Michigan, you have to go back to at least 2018, When voters there passed a constitutional amendment to have an independent panel instead of the legislature draw congressional and and state legislative districts, and that came home to roost uh, this time with Democrats winning control of the state House and the state Senate. Uh, Meanwhile, Gretchen Whitmer gets reelected by double digits. I don't think anybody saw that one coming. Attorney General, Secretary of State, same thing. I don't know if they were both double digits, but both comfortably reelected. And, oh, by the way, uh, Proposal 3, which allows abortion for any reason up until the moment of birth, easily passing as well. So, uh, Scott, this this is a Michigan that looks a whole lot different than it did Six years ago, Illinois, of course, uh, has already been much deeper blue than Michigan uh, in recent years, but it seems to be getting even bluer. So uh, you're you're an expert on both. So where do you like to start? Greg, it's not all bad news. This is the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year in Michigan, as you well know. November leaves have fallen. It's crisp. It's beautiful in the mornings. We have, we're back on standard time, which means, you know, it's light when you wake up, but it's dark at, at uh, five o'clock. And I actually, I like that. There are so many wonderful things out there that aren't politically uh, minded. So let's, let's focus on the good. No, no. Okay. Let's focus on the bad. So I blame myself, Greg. I, I moved from Illinois to Michigan in 2016, January, 2016. And apparently I somehow uh, in the trunk without knowing uh, brought along all of Illinois' politics with me to Michigan. <laughs> and that's where we find ourselves now. It's a trifecta for Democrats in Michigan. They hold the governor's mansion, they hold the House, and they hold the Senate for the first time since 1983. And I believe before then, the last time before that was 1930-something, if I'm not mistaken. So this is a big deal. They f- ended up flipping both the Senate and the House on Tuesday with the results and uh, you already mentioned the the constitutional amendment. There were two others that passed as well that aren't great news for conservatives in, in Michigan. And uh, we are we are we are going to be in trouble, Greg. I, I don't I just I can't soft sell this. Um, 
you know, when you have not had the levers of power in a state since 1983, there's 40 years of stuff that has been building and building, and now you have the opportunity to do what you've always wanted to do. Uh, state Senator Danya Polhanke, who uh, chairs, was the Democrat ranking member on the Education Committee in the State Senate in Michigan, did a long Twitter thread on all the things that they want to do now that they have power. They're going to try to repeal right to work in Michigan. That probably is going to be the first thing they do. Uh, sensible gun laws coming right up, she says. Teachers, you're going to get paid what you deserve. Uh, education funding has been increasing in Michigan, even with Republicans in the House and Senate recently. For-profit charter schools, open your books. We're going to see where taxpayer money goes. There are large concerns here in Michigan about what Democrats will do and what they want to do for charter schools across the state, which serve a good slice of the population, including a large percentage of students in Detroit. Uh, but Democrats hate charter schools for obvious reasons. Every charter school is 50 jobs that aren't union jobs, teacher union jobs, and teacher unions fund largely Democratic campaigns across the state. Uh, they want to um, make it more expensive for corporate polluters. They're going to um, get adequate funding to K-12 schools, she says. But the funding already is adequate, as I'm sure we could talk about in a separate conversation. It's uh, it, it's the way that money is used when it gets down to those schools. So there's a laundry list. They've been waiting for a long, long time, and they're going to try to execute all that stuff here in, in Michigan when 2023 rolls around. So we don't have a lot to look forward to in Michigan for the next two years politically. Uh, you mentioned Illinois, and Illinois has been you know, a dumpster fire of politics for an awfully long time. But boy, oh boy, this time there was optimism there that you'd flip a couple of House seats. Democrats perhaps got too aggressive in their remap, and Republicans could flip the 17th, which Trump won. The 17th district in Illinois, that was Sherry Bustos. Sherry Bustos was head of the DCCC, and she begged off running because she was so sure she was going to lose. Republicans couldn't flip that seat. They couldn't flip Illinois 6, which is the old Peter Roskam seat for, for a long time. Democrats held that. They couldn't flip Illinois 14, which is the far, 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 far west and southwest suburbs of Chicago. Lost Illinois 13 because of a, a redistrict uh, remap. Uh, all those seats were Democrat, are Democrat, will be Democrat in, in 2023. The Illinois Supreme Court, which they thought they had a chance to flip but at least stop some of the bad stuff, didn't do it. Lost an extra seat. It's going to be 5-2. Everywhere you look in these two states, uh, one in which I live and one in which I still have many connections and, and pay attention to, bad stuff. Bad stuff everywhere. Yeah, it's fascinating to watch because you've got two pretty deeply red states now with Ohio and Indiana. And then Illinois has just been, like you said, super far left for a long time. Uh, there's really no power for Republicans in the legislature, last I heard there. And now for the situation in Michigan, not only have Democrats you know, gotten the maps they wanted, uh, both for the federal and uh, state legislative uh, boundaries, but as you mentioned, they did pass another proposal, Proposal 2, which weakens the proof you need to present to be able to vote. They had voter ID requirements in Michigan, and now you just have to sign an affidavit uh, saying you are who you are, and you no longer have to present photo ID, which is obviously going to weaken election security, and um, that makes it much harder, I would say, for Republicans to get back where they want to go, especially with these maps that they're going to be stuck with for the next decade. 
The argument there was people in favor were saying we're, we're codifying voter ID. We're saying we're, we're putting voter ID right in there. But of course, what they didn't say is the way they define voter ID is actually, yes, just sign this piece of paper that says you are who you are. <laughs> like the, the, the phrase voter ID doesn't mean anything if you define it down to simply signing a piece of paper. All right. Well, a lot of stress on midterm election night, a lot more than most of us conservatives were expecting. You might have eaten some uh, not so great stuff. You might have had some adult beverages. And that means your liver probably didn't have the greatest night either. For anyone looking to ignite your fat burning metabolism, boost your energy, transform how you look and feel, you got to start taking care of the liver. But now there's good news about how to get your liver functioning well again. There is a simple all-natural solution called Liver Health Formula. Liver Health Formula contains 12 powerful botanicals clinically proven to recharge and protect your liver at the cellular level. It helps restore your liver's detoxifying abilities, boosts your energy levels, and can kick your natural metabolism into high gear. It also works well to fight fatty liver, which is a silent epidemic affecting 100 million Americans. You can try Liver Health Formula completely risk-free and receive five free gifts when you order today. First, a free 30-day supply of nano-powered omega-3 and four free e-books to support every aspect of your health and longevity. Go to getliverhelp.com slash martini or call toll-free at 800-282-1757 to claim your risk-free supply of Liver Health Formula and all five bonus gifts. Getliverhelp.com or 800-282-1757. All right, Scott, we mentioned in passing in that first double-fisted martini that uh, Michigan, unfortunately, passed an abortion uh, uh, amendment to the Constitution providing a right to an abortion all 40 weeks of the pregnancy right up to the moment of birth uh, for any reason whatsoever. Extraordinarily disappointing. Extraordinarily disappointing. Yet somehow, some states are even worse. And the worst one, I think, so far in this cycle is Montana, amazingly enough. You wouldn't expect them to be the most radical on the issue of abortion. But nonetheless, here we go. They had a referendum about requiring care for infants born alive. So it says, establishes that infants born alive at any stage of development are legal persons and require medical care to be provided for any infant born alive after an attempted abortion, induced labor, or other method. This referendum also institutes criminal penalties for any healthcare provider who does not comply. So a yes is, yes, you have to take care of these babies born alive. A no says, no, you don't. The no's actually won. Uh, the latest number I have is with 91% reporting, no at 52.4%, yes at 47.6%. And Scott, it's it's maddening here because you look at the polls when the pollsters actually bother to break it down from should there be abortion, should there not be abortion, to what do you think about 15 weeks? What do you think about heartbeat? And for those who actually do that, you see that most Americans are fine restricting it to at least 15 weeks or maybe 20 weeks or whatever the poll happens to ask. But now... I don't know if people got spooked by Dobbs and a ton of, of women who wouldn't have otherwise voted went to the polls here or what happened. But um, with very radical ballot initiatives in states like Michigan and, and even worse here in Montana, uh, the radical, radical pro-abortion side seems to keep winning. Yeah, in, in Michigan, you, you referenced Prop 3 here, and it gives the state the most extreme abortion law in the country, not just on abortion up 
to the moment of birth, but also when it comes to parental consent and parental notification and giving the ability for 12 and 13 year olds to decide without parental consent uh, to be sterilized or go through some of these gender treatment. It is really a far flung amendment that Michigan approved. And I do give credit to the to the pro-life side, to the to the no side. They worked their butts off. Uh, this was polling at, you know, 70, 30, I think, when it first hit the ballot. And I didn't look at the final numbers because at some point it just doesn't matter. But I think it was, you know, 55, 45 or 54, 46. They got the, the margin down. But in the end, the margin doesn't matter. It's still still passed. And it's going to be codified in the state constitution. So that's here in Michigan. And this Montana law that you that you mentioned, this re- referendum you mentioned, I mean, when you read when you read what was on the ballot, it's just incredible that someone could then take the pen and fill in that circle next to no. Establishes that infants born alive at any stage of development are legal persons and require medical care to be provided for any infant born alive after an attempted abortion, induced labor, or other method. That's what it says. You take that pen, you fill in no, there will be a lot of analysis about, you know, why and how and i wonder i'm not in montana i don't know how the how the ads looked in montana but i wonder uh, uh, about the use of of doctors which was very heavily in, in michigan a lot of the pro prop three advertisements in michigan were just a string of doctors doctor after doctor after doctor saying i can't do my job this would allow me to do x and y and i think part of the the no on the referendum there was some concern on the doctor's part that this law would uh, make us uh, provide life-saving medical care to a, uh, a an infant born alive who clearly was not going to survive. So the you know, parents pressuring doctors into doing these uh, p- potentially life-saving maneuvers on, on a, at a baby clearly is not going to survive. I think I think that was part of the argument for no in Montana. But I do wonder if, if sort of the uh, the cascade of doctors in these ads is is powerful uh, to people who have not made up their minds on on the referendums. At the end of the day, though, again, you walk in that voting booth, you read what it says in Montana and, 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 and fill in that no circle. Man, I just don't know. I, I don't know how that happens. I don't know what the messaging has to be to, to, to sort of change and whether or not you know, this is this is not a presidential year. Will it be different if you try to do this in a presidential year? Well, I don't know, but you, you would have thought heading into this year that the electorate would have been much yes. more favorable to this sort of idea than probably during a presidential year, but apparently not. And so, you know, you've heard it some already, uh, and, and you're probably going to hear it again as the postmortem of this midterm uh, unfolds. And that's, well, did the Supreme Court mess up the midterms? And did they motivate people to go to the polls from a pro-abortion position that wouldn't have otherwise shown up, or at least not with the same intensity. And it's it's hard to know. It's possible. But Scott, my argument would still be that they did the right thing constitutionally and morally, yeah. uh, because right. it always was wrong for this to be judged by judicial fiat from Washington. It should be uh, decided by the states. But it is very disappointing that a lot of these states seem to be taking the most radical path possible. Look, Lots of variables in here in terms of candidate quality and all the things that are being discussed here after Tuesday's election. If we, if you want to ask simply about abortion and what role it played, if the question is presented to conservatives and pro-life people out there that 
you know, Roe v. Wade is struck down, as you mentioned, not just for moral reasons, but for legal reasons, a very poor legal decision at the time. Roe v. Wade is, is overturned, and the price you pay at the ballot box is not losing seats, but simply maintaining a status quo. And you don't do quite as well as you think you might have. Is that a deal you make? Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, but you don't do as well as you think. Essentially, well, in fact, you take the House, it looks like, said it's going to stay the same, or perhaps maybe 51-49, maybe you gain a seat. Is that a trade-off that you make if you've been looking for Roe to be overturned for 50 years? And my guess is, not scientific, but my guess is most would say, yes, I'm okay with that trade-off, and we can fight another day, you know, electorally at the ballot box. But having the opportunity to overturn horrible piece of jurisprudence and, you know, uh, just a, a moral catastrophe in Roe v. Wade and Casey, that that is worth more long term. I mean, the pre- Democrats make this calculus all the time. Go back to Obamacare when they lost whatever, 60 seats in the House and everything flipped in 2010. And a lot of Democrats who, who voted for Obamacare and got it across the finish line in those postmortems after the election said, you know, I'd do it again. You know, why do you have, why do you achieve power except to use it to, to get to the ends that you want? And this is a roundabout way because it wasn't, you know, Donald Trump had to appoint judges to the Supreme Court who then would look at a case like this and, and decide in, in a, uh, uh, you know, in, in a constitutional way. Um, but that's why, that's why you achieve, that's why you win to be able to achieve the ends that you want. And so getting to a point now in which conservatives say, well, maybe we, we didn't do as well as we thought. We won the House, didn't get the Senate seats we wanted, but Roe v. Wade is overturned. I think that's a that's a, a bargain most would make. I think you're right on, on the you know midterm election in terms of candidates on the ballot. The question I think that's, that's bigger is whether the loosening up of what the Supreme Court did actually led to far more radical abortion policies than previously existed. In some states, it's going to happen. States, in, yeah. in other states, it's not because in the more red yeah, states, right. it's, it's basically banned entirely. Oklahoma, for, the, for example, is almost entirely banned. And others have certainly uh, put in much more strong restrictions as well. So once again, it leads to more of a balkanization of the country. But uh, in places where uh, more significant restrictions like Texas, um, like Oklahoma, I think Louisiana is another one. Uh, there seems to have been no problems whatsoever, and hopefully it's saving a lot of lives. Yeah, I mean, I'm not uh, pleased at all with what happened in Michigan. Um, if I go back to Illinois, where, again, I spent a good portion of my life. Their laws were already as liberal as could be on abortion before Roe v. Wade was overturned. They didn't have to do anything else after that happened. But that means that it's on, you know, it's on us. It's, it's on us in the states now to, to make the case, to, to, to make prudent decisions about how to push forward a pro-life agenda. Uh, and it, I still think it's a preferable position to be in than one than the one we had under Roe and Casey. I definitely agree with that. I definitely agree with that because things change at the state level and you don't have to worry about uh, the balance on the Supreme Court uh, to, to, to try and move your agenda forward. That can happen uh, in dozens of different states depending on the breakdown in the legislature. 
All right, on to our final crazy martini now here, Scott, and certainly on a lighter note, but uh, uh, one that I know you find interesting because you're teaching a class on the political comedy of uh, Saturday Night Live this semester. And uh, the news from SNL this week, and it's probably getting more attention than they would have had otherwise, is that uh, certain staff writers are not at all happy that Dave Chappelle is hosting Saturday Night Live this weekend, according to Page Six over at the New York Post, some staff writers are so furious that Chappelle, who has made transphobic and homophobic jokes, has been chosen to helm the iconic show that they're sitting out the episode. They're not going to do the show, an insider told Page Six, but none of the actors are boycotting. Uh, Chappelle's rep uh, said that there was nothing to suggest there was a boycott when they attended writers' meetings this week. So I don't know if they're just... Uh, you know, uh, virtue signaling here, Scott, or they're actually going to sit it out. Uh, if Chappelle actually writes more of the skits, it'll be a far better episode anyway. But uh, uh, what do you make of uh, SNL, which used to be the iconoclast, now having the vapors anytime somebody who doesn't toe the the uh, establishment and liberal line here uh, comes onto the set? Not the very first time something like this happened back in uh, 1989, I believe it was, Andrew Dice Clay was hosting SNL, and Nora Dunn, a uh, cast member at that time, decided to boycott the show. Didn't tell anyone except the press, which really rankled both Lauren Michaels, who runs SNL, and her other, cast, uh, her other castmates on the show. That she essentially didn't tell them, but told the press that she was sitting out SNL. And that actually ended up with Nora Dunn doing, I think, one more episode before her contract was up, and she was off the show. Didn't end up really well for Nora Dunn way back when. This is a little different in that it uh, doesn't appear to be involving any cast members. It says SNL writers, and everyone, well, like Chappelle's team, is telling Page Six, that's not the case. Everyone looked like they were there. Of course, that staff is so big right now, I'm not sure you'd know if people were missing from the table <laughs> because they were trying to boycott the gig. Uh, it, it, it is, you know, uh, as you mentioned, I'm teaching this class on, on SNL and the political humor of SNL. And one of the things I had to overcome with students was I had to convince them that SNL used to be really funny, right? <laughs> <laughs> they, they've, they've seen recent years. They know what it's like now. I said, it's not, it wasn't always like that. They used to be, it used to be really funny and politically had, had different takes and not sort of just the party line uh, and sort of reenacting events that happen during the course of the week. Uh, this is, I think, the third time that Chappelle is hosted after, directly after an election. So they're, they're, they're making it sort of an, an annual or, you know, every two-year sort of thing. And, you know, it is very odd, as you say, that people in comedy cannot um, put up with others in comedy making jokes they don't like. It is just, it is a very strange situation. And especially for SNL, where, a place where for many, many years anything went uh, and that, that it's on multiple sort of, you know, what the targets of the jokes, what the jokes were, what was happening behind the scenes, all those things. And to, to have a situation now where writers don't want perhaps the best and most well-known comedian on the planet to come and host <laughs> a show is very strange. Um, even in what, this is year 50, 47, year 47, closing out on 50 seasons of SNL. I don't think, other than the Nora Dunn and Andrew Dice Clay, there's ever been a, a situation where the cast or the writers have said, I'm not writing for this person this week. So we'll see if it actually comes to fruition or it's a bit of bluster or Lorne makes them work, which I suppose is possible. But uh, it's just a weird time over there 
to, to try to find the definition of comedy. What's funny, and why should we put up with people telling jokes we don't like? <laughs> it's just incredible. Well, I hope your stuff from the 80s and 90s and maybe even the very early 2000s has been entertaining for your students, even though most of that happened before they were born. But, uh, yeah, it, it actually was a very funny show, as most of our listeners probably know, uh, for a long time, especially as we got into election season. But now, I mean, once you saw... Kate McKinnon at a piano singing hallelujah when Trump beat Hillary Clinton, you knew that any effort to uh, have a both sides attempt at humor in politics was deader than a doornail at, at, at 30 Rock. So The seeds of this are actually with the way the show treated Sarah Palin in 2008. It's one of the first times in the show that they didn't necessarily try to put an interesting twist or a different sort of angle on a politician and simply presented the politician and said, this person is weird and goofy and you should agree with us that they're just not a good person. Like they didn't do a lot with Sarah Palin. Tina Fey had the impression, but it was essentially just Tina Fey is not smart and not one of us, not an elite. She's from Alaska. She has a weird accent. And that's all they did. So I think 2008 is kind of the beginning of, of, not the beginning of the end, but the beginning of the way that SNL largely treats political humor these days. Yeah, I think that I think Obama also was a hinge point there because he became uh, verboten uh, to criticize. And and then, of course, it was wall to wall Trump. And now Joe Biden, who might be the most lampoonable president in the, of the television age, is also largely off limits or at least in a very, very tame way compared to how he would have been treated a generation ago. That's okay, Greg. Some uh, backbench state senator in Tennessee has said something mildly offensive, and he will be lampooned on Weekend Update this weekend. <laughs> they are taking the shots at the big movers and shakers that I set out. <laughs> Man, I wish I could take this class. Scott, always great to have you with us. Thanks for filling in for Jim today, uh, and have a, a great weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Greg. Scott Bertram is general manager of 101.7 W. RFH, Radio Free Hillsdale, on the campus of Hillsdale College in Michigan, where he's also a uh, teacher in journalism. He's also the host of the Radio Free Hillsdale Hour, which you can hear on Ricochet, among many other places. And he's host of the Political Beats podcast. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. Do subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch if you don't already. Tell a friend about us as well. Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep them coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to tell it is to play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. Scott is at Scott Bertram, S-C-O-T-B-E-R-T-R-A-M. Jim, of course, is at Jim Garrity. And I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Thursday and tune in again on Friday for the next Three Martini Lunch. We know there's so much craziness going on in the news these days, but don't worry because we're here to talk about it all. Elon Musk is finally the owner of Twitter and restoring free speech. And with Election Day less than a week away, it is more important than ever to remember to vote accordingly and vote to have your voice heard. Hey, it's the Chicks here from the Chicks on the Right podcast. Download and subscribe to our daily podcast to hear us pick apart and pick on the news of the day. Politics to pop culture, nobody's safe, but it's all fun. Subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.